So the market has been very resilient to downturns. But is there anything that could change that dynamic? Anything out there on the radar that could impact the economy in a way that would suggest that we could see a reduction in earnings potentially and a reassessment of valuations in the markets? And the market knows about this, but it does have a very discernible impact on the economy, much more so than a single bank failure. And that's student loan repayments. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. It's The Real Investment Show, of course. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. It's the Hump Day Edition. And it's also two hours today. So again, we're still uh, filling in for Chris Salcedo here from 7 to 8 a.m. on KCB Radio here in Houston, Texas, 700 a.m., of course. And uh, so if you're watching our YouTube live stream, we'll be on for two hours this morning. So lots of stuff to cover. Um, Starting today, we have two days of Fed speak. Jerome Powell does his annual testimony. So we'll get uh, a, a bit more clarity on at least what's going on in his mind regarding inflation and interest rates and whether or not July is a live meeting. This was an interesting comment that he made in the June FOMC meeting, which we just had, you know, just recently. He said that while they were, quote unquote, skipping the rate hike in June, July was still a live meeting. Well, what that was implying is, is that in July, the, the potential to hike rates was there. Right. And so now the markets are going, well, maybe they are going to hike rates more. We don't know what that means. Well, we'll probably get some more clarity about that, um, of course, in the next two days, as again, he's going to be giving a lot of testimony. He will get questioned a lot about inflation, Fed policy, outlooks, those type of things. But, you know, the interesting thing is, is that markets and, and we touched a bit on this yesterday. Markets are really just not paying attention to anything. Right. Uh, This has been the big conundrum when markets have been up on average 10 percent in the first part of the year, which we're now uh, have exceeded that. They tend to be up another 10 percent by the end of the year. So, you know, all in all, you're talking about a 20 percent annualized rate of return, you know, for a market this year. Now, that's kind of hard to imagine coming out of a market last year that was down 25 percent. So. You know, it's you know, there's still a lot of bearishness. A lot of people still, you know, concerned. This is a this is a bull trap, and that very quickly now we're all going to get sucked back into into the uh, impending bear market because of all the economic data. But the markets are saying no, and what's important is is that markets have a psychological impact on both consumers and investors, obviously on investors, right? It's the classical conditioning. It's Pavlov's experiment. Markets go up. As markets go up, it rings the bell. So investors buy more stuff Uh, in the markets. They chase more stocks. Stocks go higher, so they chase more stuff. You know, that's the way it works with investors. But in the economy, you know, what the Fed has been trying to do by hiking interest rates is, is reduce all that monetary accommodation that they had put in back in 2020-2021, right? So we had $5 trillion in fiscal stimulus from the government, but they were doing $1.2 uh, billion a month, uh, sorry, $1.2 uh, a month 
I'll get that, I'll spit that out, $120 billion a month in quantitative easing over the course of that time. And not only did we have QE, we had interest rates at zero. So we had a lot of monetary accommodation being put into place. So the Fed's been trying to kind of sop up that excess liquidity by hiking interest rates. So as they've been hiking interest rates, what in theory should happen is that asset prices should go down because of less liquidity. And that, that's sort of what happened last year, but this year the market's been rallying. Why? Well, because that monetary liquidity has been rising because of the um, bank term funding program, which was put into place to bail out Silicon Valley Bank. Then there was a lot of concern that, oh my gosh, this debt ceiling deal, well, that's going to cause a big contraction liquidity because, well, the Treasury's got to fund, you know, a trillion dollars worth of bonds to, to refund all the debt that was borrowed to make payments during the debt ceiling freeze. Well, over the course of the last couple of weeks, the Treasury's issued about $600 billion in bills and the market hasn't blinked. And guess what? Liquidity is still rising. So... The, all this concern that everyone had about, you know, everything that was going to crash the market hasn't crashed the market, and yet the markets continue to rise here, and that is easy. Now, here's the important point, right? As the markets rise, it eases monetary conditions, which is the one thing the Fed is trying to tighten in order to quell inflation, slow economic growth, and raise unemployment to make sure that the inflation boogeyman is dead. That's the goal, the, the, Fed, the, the whole point of what the Fed's doing. So we're, we're gonna hear a lot about that from the Fed um, over the next couple of days. We'll hear more about this and what they have to say. Okay, but here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Uh, the market has had two days of decline. Now, this is uh, hard to believe here after such a stretch in the markets where markets were just literally rising every single day. But again, we've talked about this before, is that we have these buying and selling stampedes. And right now, that buying stampede had gotten very long in the tooth. So we're having a little bit of a pullback here. Again, the question is, is will it continue? Now, futures are looking to open a little bit weaker this morning. Not surprising ahead of the, whatever the Fed might say. But we are starting to kind of maybe begin that work of that consolidation or corrective process that will bring prices back down towards at least the 20-day moving average right now, which is right now that's around 42.60 on the S&P 500. So that's not a big correction, right? That's about 2-3%, but that'll help ease up a little bit of this overbought condition uh, that is in the markets right now. And uh, again, we'll, we're kind of looking for the market to rotate here a little bit. Um, you know, basically technology, communications, discretionary sell off here a little bit get a bit of rotation into some of the other sectors like staples and, and real estate and, and utilities, et cetera. Those, those areas of the market that are a little bit more defensive maybe pick up a little bit of rotational cash flow over the course of the next few days. And that, again, and as we said yesterday, that wouldn't be surprising at all heading into the end of the month because a lot of mutual funds, pension funds, et cetera, that manage money and they have balanced allocations, they're going to have to sell some of the high flyer stuff buy some of the stuff that's not been performing as well to bring their allocation weights in their portfolios kind of back towards model weight. That's kind of what happens at the end of each quarter. They do this rebalancing. Um, so we could see a little bit of rotation here within the markets as well as a bit of a pullback just because of just the selling pressure, particularly in 
those bigger tech names like Microsoft, Apple, Google, Tesla, etc. Now, those those stocks, of course, have been very resilient this year. And, you know, we keep kind of expecting to pull back. They haven't yet. Doesn't mean they won't. They just haven't yet. But again, kind of keep a watch on, on this market here. It looks like we may have uh, temporarily started, started this corrective process. We're still on a buy signal, though. So again, the, the, the uh, price momentum is still there to keep prices elevated. We haven't triggered a sell signal, but if the next couple of days, and this can happen fairly quickly, if the market kind of dissolves over the next day or two, gives us that kind of short-term corrective pullback, we could trigger that sell signal from a decently high level, and that would suggest a continuation of this corrective process at least over the next week or two which would give you, as we said before, that would give you a much better opportunity to allocate some money to the markets. Remember, a 5 to 10% correction with any given year of the market is certainly well within norms. So keep a watch on this. Uh, keep a little bit of dry powder here. I think you'll get a better opportunity to put it to work. Uh, but that's what you need to know before the bell. Now, as we get ready to uh, get into the show this morning, got a lot of stuff to get into. But be sure you go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Um, get our latest newsletter. We had a blog post out yesterday. We discussed on the show yesterday morning talking about AI speculation and kind of the whole you know, headwinds that may, that may face AI and this generative AI you know, kind of chase in the markets over the next, you know, next couple of years anyway. Uh, that's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Make sure you subscribe for our weekly newsletter as well. We'll be right back after the break. We'll get into the show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Don't go away. The Real Investment Show. So a couple of uh, stories that um, have the potential to move markets. Um, uh, again, the Federal Reserve, as I was saying, they're going to be on Capitol Hill uh, for the next two days giving testimony. And so we'll hear a lot from Powell and uh, his outlook and views of the market. But some, some good news this morning. Uh, we had touched on this yesterday. Apparently, there is now underwater noises being heard in the frantic search for that submersible uh, that is missing um, with the five people that had gone down to view the Titanic. So a Canadian military surveillance aircraft detected underwater noises. And by the way, this has captivated my entire household. So my, you know, my wife is the, the you know, the, she listens to true crime all the time. Um, she's just making sure she has all her ducks in the row when it, the time comes. Um, so, yeah, she doesn't want to get caught. <laughs> But, you know, she's she's temporarily migrated from true crime over to this underwater situation and has plenty of, of you know, plenty of advice on how to solve this problem very quickly. So, she's become Christina Cousteau. Yes, she she knows it very well. So anyway, uh, Canadian military surveillance aircraft. Then this is this is very interesting, right? So think about this. This this submersible is somewhere between zero and two miles below water. Because the, the Titanic is two miles below the surface. So this submersible is somewhere in that depth. And a Canadian military surveillance aircraft 
flying above the water actually detected underwater noises as that massive search continues. That's just pretty amazing what we can do with technology. So it's just, just fascinating. Anyway, a statement from the U.S. Coast Guard did not elaborate on what rescuers believed the noises could be, um, though it offered a glimmer of hope for those lost aboard. Um, the, and as, as the, the Titan, as estimates suggest, that there's about less than a day's worth of oxygen left in that vessel if it's still functioning. So there is time, but that time is running out. But just pretty amazing Again, what we have have accomplished with technology and the things that we can do. So just this, that just kind of I, I like those kind of stories because it's like that's pretty cool. Um, so we have talked about before um, about ESG, which is this environmental social governance investing, and we said you know a couple of years ago. When this first started, and if you go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, and type in ESG in the search bar at the top of our website, you'll see a couple of articles we wrote on the the scam that is ESG. And the, the whole idea that if you buy stock in Apple, that somehow you're helping the environment, which is entirely not the case, has nothing to do with that. But it was this move towards socialistic ideas within the economy. And so companies were all jumping on board with that. And we may, and the statement that we made at the time was really two, two big factors, or th really three big factors about ESG. First of all, it was a lot of greenwashing. Two, there, it's, it's nebulous as to what ESG is, right? There's no factors, right? If I want to fundamentally analyze a company... I can look at cash flow ratios. I can look at debt ratios. I can look at operating uh, margins. I can look at these very specific things that are quantifiable to just to judge how well that business is being run and operated. ESG, there's no metrics for that. It is all a bunch of pie in the sky stuff. And I said then that all of this is fine and dandy. We can certainly do this, but it does nothing for the environment. Because if I buy Apple stock, all I did was give money to Brent, who sold me his shares of Apple. Apple doesn't know. Every day, there's millions of shares being transacted in companies all across the country, and those companies have no idea who's buying or selling those shares. They're just out on the open market. So... If you want to invest in a company that is ESG friendly, that's fine. But don't think you're actually doing anything for ES or G, right? You're just buying shares from somebody who wanted to sell them. You think you're smart for buying them. They think they're smart for selling them. Somebody's right. Somebody's wrong. But it has nothing to do with ESG. But all this gave was, was companies the ability, particularly fund managers, to charge you a lot more. And we made the case by showing you at that time the differential in performance of buying an S&P index fund, which had a very low expense ratio, and the BlackRock ESG fund. And we broke that down in the article, and we showed you that the top 10 holdings are exactly the same with one exception. That one exception was BlackRock's stock was in the top 10 holdings of the ESG fund they were promoting. 
So basically they were saying, oh, we're SGA friendly, so we're going to put our stock in there. All it did was is by promoting ESG, you bought the ESG ETF and it pushed their stock price higher, which made Larry Frank, Larry Fink richer. Right? Benefited him. Didn't benefit you. And the performance on a correlation basis was 99% correlated. In other words, there was no difference in performance, but here was the real kicker. BlackRock was charging you four times as much for the same fund as buying an S&P 500. So the only person that it actually benefited was BlackRock and Larry Fink. You got no difference in performance. You didn't do anything to help the environment, but it made BlackRock richer. And I told you at the time that this was all fine and dandy until performance matters. And it's interesting now that we're starting to see that shift. ESG is becoming much less popular. In fact, Morningstar just put out an article yesterday saying that ESG may be behind us now. And we said this, said, look, we've seen this before. Back in the late 90s, it was a function of gambling, you know, what we called sin stocks at the time in the late 90s. You didn't want to own sin stocks. There was a big movement against owning sin stocks. You didn't want to support companies that did gambling or pornography or um, alcohol or tobacco, any of the vices, right? We had this kind of moment where we said we don't want to support those companies. We don't want those companies to have cash flow. Now, that was actually more damaging at the time because that actually did create selling in the stocks of those companies and cause those companies' values to fall. But what happened, of course, is that in the next two years, as the dot-com bubble blew up, everybody bought those stocks. And so all those stocks that everybody was supposed to hate and not invest in, those were the big winners. And guess what all the investors did? Put all their money back in those stocks. Performance trumps social ideas every single time. And normally when somebody does some of these stupid ideas and they say, oh, we're going to do this type of investing and we're not going to invest in those type of companies anymore, generally the ones that people don't want to invest in turn out to be the best performing stocks. So again, you know, that's, that's the problem with ESG, right? Oh, you weren't supposed to invest in those evil oil companies. Remember that back in 2020, 2021? Then, of course, 2022 comes along and energy stocks are up 40% and the market's down 25%. All of a sudden, energy wasn't so dirty after all, right? This, but this is the problem with these market narratives and all these type of things. But one of the things that, you know, we've seen a lot lately, right? Bud Light, Nike, Target. Investors are now boycotting some of these companies because of social issues, right, that these companies have, have taken on. And one of the things is, is that we may be targeting the wrong companies in these fights against social issues. You need to be targeting BlackRock, making sure you're not investing in any BlackRock funds. Don't give any money towards the BlackRock family of, of investments. Don't buy BlackRock stock. 
Because, see, what BlackRock does, which owns $10 trillion of assets, they control or have a lot of interest in many of these companies. And, and BlackRock is the one pushing a lot of these social ideas onto companies like Target, Budweiser, etc. They say, you know, hey, if you don't do this, we're going to vote to change your compensation. We're going to impact you personally if you don't follow these. Black, Larry Fink from BlackRock said this specifically in an interview. He says, we can impact their compensation if they don't conform to our ideas. So if you really want to change the world, start focusing on Larry Fink's compensation. And that may actually happen. Um, there's a bill being passed right now. And again, Larry Fink was one of the big promoters of ESG when it first came out. ESG governance was BlackRock's flag that they planted on the hill and said, this is where we are going to live or die, right? Victory or defeat over ESG. Larry Fink was running around his entire company promoting ESG and making sure that all of their fund managers were focused on ESG. The House of Representatives now passing a bill because ESG got infiltrated into 401k plans because BlackRock has a lot of control over 401k plans too. They're now pushing a bill that would target funds that consider environmental, social, and governance issues as ESG. The bill will be part of a wider GOP invest, uh, uh, progress to rein in ESG investment. We'll see if it passes. But again, the pushback on ESG has begun, and it's not surprising because it was all a scam in the first place. Be right back after the break. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. So welcome back to the show at 633. One of the issues um, that the market maybe hasn't priced in is coming. You know, so far, everything that has hit the markets over the last 18 months has been quickly absorbed. Markets corrected short term, and then it, that it, it quickly kind of adopts that situation whatever it is, and then rallies again. And then we have the next event, whatever it was. And we kind of talked about this in a previous um, newsletter, talking about this idea of rolling recessions and that the one thing that helped the markets last year was that money was kind of hiding in Apple and Microsoft early in the year, and that kept the market from sinking as much while a lot of these other companies that people were chasing in 2020, 2021, you know, all the meme stocks and, uh, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, high growth stocks, they were down 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 percent in some cases, you know, Zoom and Teladoc and, you know, those uh, the ARC type companies all fell sharply. But the index, because the index was, you know, comprised of Apple, Microsoft, you know, they make up about 30% of the index, those weren't going down as much at the beginning of the year. And that was helping support the market while underneath the surface, there was this big disaster going on. And we, we wrote an article about this and using a, an iceberg as a, an example. 
that, you know, below the surface, there was a tremendous amount of devastation going on, but the index was holding up pretty well. So, you know, once that was over, then the market started kind of rallying back a bit. Then the Fed started getting aggressive about hiking interest rates. So the market sold off again. Then we kind of figured out that, okay, well, you know, we understand that problem. And so then the markets rallied again, beginning on hopes that the Fed would stop hiking rates and begin to cut rates. And then, of course, we got into the Silicon Valley bank failure. The market declined a little bit. And then the Fed steps in with a, with the bank term funding program to help bail out the, the, or the regional banks. So the markets rallied back again. Then we get to this. Then the market goes, oh, what about AI? And so we've been chasing AI now for the last few months. So the market has been very resilient to downturns because, you know, and look, economic growth hasn't been terrible, right? We've been cranking out one and a half, two percent growth. Second quarter is now expected to be about two percent growth. So economic growth isn't falling off the cliff. And market, you know, earnings um, have been improving a little bit from the fourth quarter. So fourth quarter looked like the trough in earnings. So earnings have started to improve here a bit. And so markets have been been holding in here a bit better because the economic data isn't terrible and employment remains fairly full. And earnings, again, as I said, earnings have been kind of improving here a bit. But is there anything that could change that dynamic, Right. Anything out there on the radar that could impact the economy in a way that would suggest that we could see a reduction in earnings potentially and a reassessment of valuations in the markets? And the one thing, and look, I, I'm not saying this is going to be the case because, again, markets tend to price in things that it knows about. And the market knows about this, what I'm about to tell you. But it does have a very discernible impact on the economy, much more so than a single bank failure. And that's student loan repayments. The Education Department yesterday, and this has kind of been a little bit up in the air here over the last you know, couple of weeks because we were waiting on some rulings to come down, but the Education Department out yesterday I'm just going to read to you from the the headlines of the CNBC article of this morning. Over the three-year-long pause, over the last three years, students have not been required to make student loan payments for three years now. There's been a moratorium because of the economic shutdown. The government said, you know what? We're going to put a pause on your student loan payments, let you have that money, that extra money coming every month to help you kind of pay bills here while we get through this pandemic shutdown. And so everybody knew that these payments were going to restart at some point, right? But then the hope was, of course, as the administrations kept, you know, putting a, you know, keeping that moratorium in place, then the hope became, but maybe they'll forgive my debt entirely because there was that whole push. And so I won't have to pay this at all. So nobody, you know, a lot of these people that had student loan payments, they were spending the money in the economy, which has helped give the economy a good bit of support here over the last couple of years that otherwise would not have been there. Well, you know, and I know you're thinking right now, well, Lance, it's just student loan payments. I mean, you know, how much can that do for the economy? The economy is, you know, 20, you know, 20 trillion bucks. 
Well, let's do some simple math. And my numbers, I'm going to I'm going to round down some numbers just to make easy math here for all of us that are, you know, driving in a car right now going to work, paying bills, doing what you're supposed to do. If you are if you are watching on YouTube, you can go Google the actual numbers, but <laughs> let's just use some simple math here. There's 44 million people, but let's just say it's 40 million people have student loans. 40 million. The average the average interest rate on student loans runs between four and a half and about seven and a half percent. So now that's if you did it through the federal programs. If you did it through private programs, which there's still some of that out there, those can range, those can be as high as 17% on interest rates. So it can get pretty onerous. But about 90%, 90, 95% of all the student loans are through the federal government. Now, that didn't exist prior to 2008, by the way. Prior to 2008, we had about $500 billion-ish in student loans outstanding. It was all private. It was all through banks. You had to go to a bank to get a student loan, pretty much. The Obama administration then said, hey, we're going to take over the student loan program, right? We're going to make it available to everyone. It was always available to everyone. You just had to go to the bank and apply for one. Just a lot of people didn't know about it. So we started promoting the student loan programs through the government, and then we ran up a trillion and a half dollars worth of, of student loans. And we were giving, it was like, hey, do you, can you fog a mirror? Here's a student loan. And you didn't have to have any qualifications, right? You didn't have to qualify for it. You didn't have to have any, you know, you didn't have to have a decent credit score. You could just borrow the money for anything. You could use it for anything. It didn't have to be required to use it for tuition. People were borrowing money on student loans to pay bills or go on trips, whatever. I mean, it was just a, a, it was just a madhouse. And this is why this is why college tuition went soaring through the roof because the colleges went, well, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that the government is going to provide funding? Yeah, tuition's going up. So all of this is a function of government intervention. So now we've got all this this government student loan debt that is now owned by taxpayers. So the hope was we were going to forgive it all, and so nobody saved the money. And now they've got to start making those payments. So let's go back to our numbers again. 40 million people have student loans. It's actually 44, but round numbers, right? 40 million people. The average student loan payment runs about 359, let's just call it 300 bucks a month. That's $12 billion a month. $12 billion a month with a B in money that is no longer going to be spent on beer and wine and dogs and cars and computers and all these other things. That's $12 billion a month that is not going to be going into discretionary purchases. And that's where most of the money was going. Yes, yeah, some of the money surely was going to, to pay bills and those type of things, but a lot of it was allowing retail sales which have been amazingly strong over the course of the last you know couple of years that's been supporting a lot of those retail sales retail sales make up 40 percent ish of personal consumption expenditures which makes up 70 percent ish of gdp now do you see the importance of this where do earnings come from for companies particularly companies that are tied to the consumer, Apple, Microsoft, Google, those type of things. Remember, Google 
serves ads. They get paid by people clicking on those ads to go buy stuff. If I don't have the money to spend, probably don't click on those ads as much, right? The end result is, of course, the retailer that paid for those ads doesn't get the business because there's less money to spend. All of a sudden, maybe I can't afford to go buy that new iPhone or that $3,500 new VR set that Apple came out with. Maybe I don't upgrade my computer. Maybe I don't buy the new Xbox. Maybe I don't buy the latest version of, of whatever video game is out from Microsoft. You see the point here, right? This impacts earnings. So expectations for earnings has been growing rather sharply, yet there's this one impact that's coming that is not entirely disregardable. Which is $12 billion a month in cash flow that is about to go back to having to pay those damn student loans. We'll see what happens. All right, quick break, come back. Wrap up this hour of the show. Top of the hour. Don't forget, we'll start taking your live questions and comments. So uh, hang on to your questions. We'll get to those top of the hour, and we'll get through those. So don't go away. More of The Real Investment Show coming up right after the break. The Real Investment Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So just uh, talking a uh, a little bit about that student loan issue here coming to an end. You know, that's, it's, it's you know, the markets will price that in, right? Um, estimates will adjust for lower earnings. And markets will begin to discount the decline in that spending. It'll get it'll it'll get absorbed. So again, you know this. You know, I don't want you to walk away from that statement going, "Oh my gosh, the market's about to crash because these student loan repayments." No, but it is going to impact earnings, and it is going to divert cash flow um, away from retail and service spending um, more towards debt payment. And then you know this is the problem with debt in general, which is that it diverts money from productive investments into debt service, which is non-productive. So, again, as we've crossed $32 trillion in debt in government, um, you know, very rapid increase in, in debt here government-wise over the last couple of weeks because of the uh, refunding of the you know, post-debt ceiling. We had to refund all the, those borrowings. So we've had this big surge in, in uh, debt issuance. So we're now over $32 trillion. That's going to continue to grow. And the further, and, and of course, the more debt that we layer on, the more debt service we have, that means that more of every tax dollar that we collect coming in in terms of revenue is diverted away from productive investments in the economy into debt service and Medicare, 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 Medicaid welfare payments, right? In fact, if you look at, as we've talked about before, it takes almost one, it actually takes more now uh, than 100 cents on the dollar of all the tax revenue we collect just to pay for mandatory spending. So just to cover mandatory spending, we're having to go further into debt. And that's going to continue to exacerbate itself as we continue to get more and more people onto the welfare system as baby boomers continue to get older and, and move into that category. Um, they're also living too long. So we may have to start Logan's run here soon. 
Um, I'll leave that uh, comment for you older people that remember that movie um, and what that means. If not, go look it up. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, but the idea, though, is that you know, this could be um, have, Im- have an impact on corporate earnings and outlooks over the course of next year. Now, those, those payments, the education department, notes on its financial and uh, financial aid website that Congress recently passed a law preventing further extension of the payment pause. That was that agreement by the debt to, to raise the debt ceiling. The agreement between the Democrats and Republicans was to put a pause uh, to, to uh, restrict another pause on those payments. Is referring to that uh, again. Um, so, in exchange for that, you know, to, to raise the debt ceiling, that provision will now cause those payments to restart. Now, those payments are, are set to restart by the by the end of August. They'll actually start right around the first of August. But this is again, this is not something that's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen next week. But as we get to September, October, November, we're probably going to see a bit of an impact towards retail sales as those payments get turned back on for whoever they are, unless something else happens in the meantime. All right. So uh, as we get ready to kind of head into the top of the hour, and again, we'll take your questions at the top of the hour as well. Uh, futures are, you know, basically down just a smidge. They're, they're basically flat. The S&P is down about two and a half points this morning. Dow's down right now about 18 points. So very negligible kind of, and, and markets are just kind of a little bit uh, tenuous ahead of the uh, of uh, the Fed's speeches in front of the House Oversight Committee over the next two days. Again, this is going to just kind of be comments that are coming in talking about their policy and, and what their views are on the economy. Do they need to hike rates for that's going to be one of the, the big issues. Um, I'm sure somebody's going to ask, you know, hey, when, when are we going to cut rates again? That's going to be, you know, kind of, you know, when is monetary accommodation coming back? And that'll that's going to be an interesting comment uh, to, to hear how the Fed answers that. But this is, but you know, uh, again, you know, the market's gone a long way very quickly. We're very overbought here. So this corrective process is, is nothing normal. Now, here's the thing. Lots of talk here over the last couple of days about bull traps. In fact, I wrote an article about this yesterday. And it's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. But I did a Fox Business interview yesterday with Charles Payne, and he asked me the same question. He's like, so is this a bull trap or is this a new bull market? And the problem here is, is that, A, you don't know. In reality, you don't know. And you won't know, unfortunately, until the market breaks the 200-day moving average. But in order for the market to break the 200-day moving average, you've got to decline 10%. So here's the issue. Markets could be down 7, 8, 9, 10%-ish, right, heading back towards that 200-day moving average, still being a bull market. And that's not a bull trap. But you're going to hear, but if we do get a 5 to a 10% correction, everybody's going to be going, oh, see, that was a bull trap. Ah, everybody got suckered in. That's actually a buying opportunity as long as that 200-day moving average holds. It's just a correction within a bullish trend. It's only when you violate that 200-day moving average and fail that you can come back and claim that, oh, yeah, that was a bull trap. Because if you violate the 200-day moving average, you're likely going to retest those October lows. That's just the technicals of it. But it is the difference between a double and a home run. 
And what I mean by that is, is if I hit, if I'm playing baseball and I hit the wall, right, I'm probably going to get a double out of it. But if I get it over the wall, it's a home run. And but it's that fine line. It is that line between the wall and a home run. If I hit the top of the wall, it's a double. If I get it over the wall, it's a home run. But that's the line. So it's 200-day moving average. It is a bull market until you violate that 200-day moving average. It is that thin of a line. And is that description that is most important. Because as long as the markets can hold that 200-day moving average, it's a buying opportunity, and you're want to, you'll want to take advantage of it. Because all from all technical aspects right now, we are in a new bull market. Technically speaking. Fundamentally, we can sit around and we can chop wood all day long talking about, you know, this indicator and that indicator and the economics and, and the interest rates. And we can do all of that. And, it, and, it, and it's great conversation. We can sit over lunch and, and discuss it all day long. Doesn't change the dynamics of the market. Market doesn't necessarily have to do what we think it should do. But see, that's the problem for investing as well. Because when we're investing we have to separate out what we think versus what the market's doing. And those two don't always agree. And, and that's what makes it challenging to invest in markets. That's what makes it difficult to navigate markets, particularly when you're coming out of a decline like we had last year, you know, down 25% uh, peak to trough. You know, when you're coming out of that, it becomes much more complicated because you keep expecting that next leg of the downturn to continue. And the problem is you don't know until later with certainty, oh, yeah, there was the bottom. I can see it. But that's the psychology of it all. And so th those are the things that we have to pay attention to. And again, when we kind of, kind of take a look back at the market over the last, you know, since 2009, clearly in a bullish trend, that hasn't changed. Are we eventually going to violate that long-term bullish trend and have a real bear market? Yeah, absolutely. It might be another decade before it happens. But it'll happen, right? And, and at some point, yes, we'll have a 50% correction. And the markets will go through another big decline because of some event that happened. Don't know when that'll be. But sure. Absolutely, it'll happen. Valuations are always an issue, and ultimately we will pay the price for high valuations. But it could be a long time. And if you're trying to sit out waiting on that opportunity to come, that's the problem. And as we talked about before, you know, in 2008 and 9, the markets were down 50%. So a lot of people were going, I don't want to get in because, you know, I think there's more to go here. We're going to go to zero, whatever it was. Market starts to rally in 2009. Yeah, but it's going to correct again. 2010, it's going to correct. You know, we're going to, you know, we're not done with the bear market yet. This is a bear market rally, right? 2011, 2012. Even today, we have people that come into our office that have not been invested in the market since 2009, now wanting to try to get back into the markets. And so the point is, is that trying to avoid a 50% decline, a lot of these people gave up a 400% advance. That's what makes investing so difficult because of our emotions. See, we allow our emotions to dictate our actions and what you know we try to do here and what I try to relay to you here on the show is that I try to give you both arguments, right? We just talked about a bearish argument a second ago with these student loan repayments, but now we're talking about a bullish market, right? They don't always agree. 
But we have to analyze each of these and we have to take into account what these markets are doing versus what we think they should do. We need to identify the risk that could change the dynamic, right? That's the student loan repayments. But it doesn't mean the market necessarily has to agree that that's an issue. We'll see. So stick around. More of The Real Investment Show, Hour 2, coming right up. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome back to hour number two of The Real Investment Show. Yes, uh, don't get used to having two hours. I'm not getting used to having two hours. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, back in the day when I was younger, um, we used to do four to six hours of radio every day. So, you know, two hours is really not that big of a stretch. But after you've been only doing an hour for a while, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you stop, you run a lot of long distances and you stop running long distances and you try to go back and run long distance and it, and it you know, hurts like hell. Um, well, that's two hours of radio now. Uh, but no, uh, we're filling in this week for Chris Salcedo, who normally is in the slot on KSEV, uh, 700 AM. So if you live in Houston, you can tune in live on your radio while you still have an AM radio. Of course, you know, uh, they're talking about trying to get rid of AM radios and cars going forward to, you know, kind of kill the AM stations. We'll see what happens. I think there'll be a pushback. There's still a lot of people that listen to AM radio, especially old people uh, like me. Um, <laughs> so but anyway, uh, if you're living in Houston or in the surrounding areas, AM 700 uh, KCV radio, that is uh, where we broadcast our show every day. We're filling in for Chris Salcedo uh, from 7 to 8 this week while he's on vacation. Um, so this hour, we're taking your questions and comments. So feel free to give us a call. 281-558-5738 is the number. That's 281-558-5738. Or you can go, if you're on our YouTube channel at The Real Investment Show, be sure and click that like button. We appreciate it. Make sure you subscribe um, and ask your questions there, and we'll also answer your questions. So, in fact, we'll just start with some questions right now. A uh, really good question uh, coming in from James this morning asking about school bonds. Uh, there's a uh, apparently, and I don't know this to be a fact, um, James says that there is a, um, a grade school, uh, $300 million grade school being built in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, it's a public school. Can I buy a municipal bond for that school? If so, how do I buy it? The answer is, yeah, you can probably buy the bond. If they've, so first of all, did they issue mini bonds, ISD bonds, uh, to pay for that school? They probably did. I don't know that for a fact, but they probably did. That bond issuance is probably already sold, to be honest with you. Um, ISD bonds are high in demand because they get paid. And as we've talked about before, the type of muni bonds that you want to own are things where people have to pay for stuff. You want your trash taken away. You want your plumbing to work, right? You want water to go to your house. Um, you know, you want your, you've got to pay your school taxes, right? Those, those things you've got to pay for. So those are what we call money good bonds. If you can buy an ISD bond, they are generally money good, particularly in the state of Texas, where you have the public utility fund that backs up the ISD, guarantees the ISD bonds as well. So, you know, those are, you know, uh, again, very good bonds to own. Um, there's one thing to consider, though. Oftentimes, and I get clients that ask me this question a lot, which is, why well, I, I want to buy tax-free bonds because I don't want to pay income taxes. 
right? The 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 revenue from municipal bonds is tax free, and if you and and so there's a couple of caveats to this. If you live in a state where you have a state income tax, you've got to buy muni bonds of that state. If you live in a state like Texas, which has no state income tax, you can buy muni bonds from everywhere. Doesn't matter. Um, but the income is tax free on a federal level. The problem is, is that you could be hurting yourself by trying to avoid paying taxes. I know nobody likes to pay taxes, but what we're trying to do is make money, right? And so if I can invest a dollar, and I'm just going to throw out some, some random numbers, okay? Just stick with me for an example purpose. Let's say I can buy a municipal bond, and don't, don't go look up a muni bond and say, well, this muni bond is paying 5%. Just stick with me for a second. Let's say that I can buy a muni bond with a yield of 3% tax-free. Or I can buy a taxable bond with a yield of 6%. Which one is a better investment? Well, the taxable bond is. Because even after I pay taxes, I make more money than the tax-free income from the muni bond. So part of the investment process you've got to go through is evaluate if I buy this muni bond that is tax-free, am I really doing the best service for my money? Yes, I know I don't want to pay taxes. I hate paying taxes. Everybody hates paying taxes. But if on an after-tax basis that taxable bond pays me more, buy the after-tax bond. I'm sorry, buy the taxable bond because your after-tax yield is higher than the tax-free. So don't worry about that part. And then, you know, you can work on trying to figure out some ways to, you know, mitigate some taxes down the road. So make sure you do the evaluation first. Okay, so but back to James's question specifically. Well, if, if, if this bond exists for this elementary school in Cambridge, probably does, how do you get it? Well, first thing you need to do is you need to call your brokerage firm. I'm assuming you don't, I'm, I'm, James, I'm assuming you're, you're doing this on your own. You don't have a financial advisor because your financial advisor can do this for you as well. But you call your, your custodian. So let's say you have your accounts at, at Charles Schwab or you have your account at Fidelity or wherever it is, and you're interested in buying some muni bonds. Call your custodian, say, connect me to the bond trading desk. I would like to buy some bonds. Get connected to the bond trading desk and say, I'm looking for this particular muni bond. Are there any available? And they'll probably tell you no, <laughs> that if this is a new issue, it's probably already been sold. Now, these bonds will come back to market because from time to time, funds have to sell things for one reason or another, or somebody who owns the bond wants to sell it and do something else with the money, whatever it is. So these, so you've got to kind of keep your eye out. But call the bond desk and say, I'm interested in this muni bond. Is it available? They'll either say yes or no. If it's available, you they'll they'll sell it to you, right? And they'll you transact. You have to do it at your custodian, so they have access to you know pay for the bond and put it in your account. So contact your custodian and ask to get connected to your bond desk so you can buy some bonds. If they don't have that bond available, they can also make recommendations for other bonds that are like it that will get you that same type of you know instrument. Maybe a different school could be a different school bond that's available, et cetera. So, uh, just but uh, but again, buying bonds is not difficult. Nobody ever talks about it very much, right? Um, buying bonds is not as easy as buying a stock because I can go onto a you know I can go onto my you know Fidelity account and buy you know buy Apple, buy Google. Everybody everybody makes it super easy to buy an equity, 
buying fixed income is, is a bit more of a hassle. But with a little bit of work and a couple of phone calls, you can you know, start adding individual bonds to your portfolio. Just, again, make sure that you do the evaluation. Just because it's tax-free doesn't mean it's the best bond to buy. So compare returns. And again, when you talk to the bond desk, ask them, say, okay, what do you have any bonds with a tax-equivalent yield? And that's the, the term you want to use. What is the tax-equivalent yield of taxable bonds could I get a better deal, right? And so go from there. So anyway, it's a good question, James. Again, something we don't talk about near enough. Uh, 281-558-5738. If you want to give us a call, we'll take your questions live here on the show. Uh, when we come back, we'll uh, pick up with some more questions um, as well on our YouTube channel. So make sure to put your questions in. Uh, either on our live chat, make sure you like the channel while you're there and subscribe to get notified. Um, Put your questions in there or give us a call, 281-558-5738. We'll come back, pick up with those questions. I've got some a couple of stories to get into this morning as we start to head into the open as well. We'll get you the, uh, the highlights of the day. So don't go away. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, just uh, taking a quick gander here at futures. Uh, S&P futures down about about eight points this morning, nine points. Uh, Dow's down about uh, 30 points at the moment. So, again, kind of a flat open this morning. Uh, we have been declining here over the last couple of days, and, and that's not surprising. We've had a very sharp run up. Markets were extremely overbought here on multiple levels. And so a, a bit of a correction or a consolidation should be and is expected um, today, right now, futures are a little bit tentative ahead of testimony from Jerome Powell uh, to the House Financial Oversight Committee. Um, that's going to potentially have potential to move markets a bit today, depending on what he says. So we will we'll see what happens um, with that. But again, a bit of a correction here. Don't be surprised. Um, markets could this summer um, you know, correct between 5 and 10%, completely normal within any given year. That would be a good buying opportunity to put some capital to work because it would reduce some of the overbought condition in a lot of these areas. But again, the chase has been on for equities lately. And so this is really starting to drag a lot of people back into the market. There's a lot of money sitting in money market funds that have got to get put back to work. And so that's going to uh, help kind of keep this market a little bit more elevated than we probably think it should. So again, just to be a little cautious here. Um, we would, um, you know, be looking for an opportunity to add some exposure here on a pullback and we'll keep you up to date. So just, you know, keep listening to the show every day. We appreciate you. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe as well on our YouTube channel. We do appreciate you very much. Um, been getting more and more viewers here every day and we definitely appreciate and appreciate you for doing that. Um, very quickly. Um, so, one of the uh, other questions I got was on. We were talking about muni bonds on the last segment, and got a uh, one question here from Gordon was about municipal bonds on prison construction. Again, I uh, I don't have access to my bond trading screens in front of me, so I can't search for them uh, here in the studio. I, I'm sure there's probably some out there. Again, call the bond desk, ask. You know, I'm I'm, I'm specifically looking for this type of of bond, and you know. Are there an available? And the answer will be yes or no. They'll, they can search them for you. Um, 
So from Germany, we have a question this morning as well, um, talking about the, you know, putting some money uh, into U.S. dollars in terms of an investment. And yeah, one of the best ways to do that. So if you live overseas and you have euros, so first of all, just basic understanding of currency transactions is that your currency never leaves your country of origin. So if I want to invest in the U.S., I have to convert my euro into U.S. dollars. Or if I'm if I'm in the U.S. and I want to to, to make a foreign investment, I've got to convert my dollars into euros or, you know, rubles or whatever, right, depending on where I want to invest. So if you want to, and this is why we talk a lot about money flows uh, between countries and what happens during economic recessions and periods of economic weakness and inflation. And, you know, there's a lot of talk over the last couple of years is like, oh, you got to be long emerging markets because emerging markets are cheap. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Emerging markets are dependent on stronger U.S. economic growth because we buy everything from them. They Emerging markets are exporters. We're importers. And so in a weak environment, we import less. That's not good for emerging market economies. You've got to be careful with that valuation argument. It's not that they're cheap relative to the U.S. That's a bad strategy. Are those valuations cheap relative to the valuations in that country? That's the answer that you're looking for. And those aren't. And so emerging markets have been underperforming U.S. stocks for a long time and have continued to do that. But back to the question, um, you know, the question is, is, is can I, you know, get some money, my euro savings put into U.S. dollars? A couple of good reasons for that. The U.S. dollar will likely strengthen as the, as the economy begins to recover. So as a function of a transaction, that's actually a good move. Uh, secondly is, is that higher yields are going to attract more foreign inflows into U.S. treasuries. Um, as that occurs, because we have a higher yield in there, that's going to attract more flows into bonds. As bond prices go up, yields come down. That'll also function with stronger economic growth as we begin, begin to recover. So um, that's going to be part of the process. So yes, the answer to your question is buy U.S. Treasuries. Um, you could buy some short-dated U.S. T-bills if you don't want to keep your money locked up for very long. Right now, you can pick up 45 to 5% on you know, anywhere from a three-month to a, a two-year Treasury bill. If you're looking for more capital appreciation and are willing to give, your time, give that investment more time to work, then I would buy Treasury bonds that would give me more capital appreciation when, and, you know, when yields begin to fall, and they, they eventually will. So it depends on your time frame of what you're looking for. So, but yes, the, the the easiest way to make a U.S. investment with euro dollars is to buy U.S. Treasuries, and so just do the conversion, buy the U.S. Treasuries, and, and go from there. So, uh, great question. We appreciate that. Two eight one five five eight five seven three eight. That's two eight one five five eight five seven three eight. Good question from Alan talking about what is the most, you know, what is the most common mistake that investors make. The most common mistake that investors make is emotions. It's always it's always emotions. It's always behavioral, which is that when we look at how investors act over time, right? They make all the same mistakes repeatedly, time after time after time. And when so, what is that? Right? They they buy high and they sell low. That's <laughs> that's the mistake they make. That's the most common mistake. But the question is is why do they do that? Why do investors underperform markets so regularly over time? 
And it's because when we analyze all the reasons why, it's always behavioral. Right? It's always about their behavior. And when we really drill down into it, it is simply a function of allowing fee, uh, fear and greed to dominate their decision making. Markets are down, so I'm afraid markets are going to lower, so I don't buy. But when, when is the time to buy? Right? Last October, we were writing articles about why, you know, everybody thought FANG stocks were dead. Everybody was, you know, convinced that Apple, Microsoft, those FANG stocks, they were absolutely dead and buried. They were never coming back again. They were going to just continue to underperform for years to come because of valuations, you know, whatever. Sentiment by investors, and we wrote about this repeatedly, sentiment by investors was so negative that that was the basis for a bull market. Why? Because investors are always backwards. And so when we go back to when we should buy things, right, when do we invest? We have to, we have to invest when nobody else wants to invest. And it's the hardest thing to do, right? Because you're going to sit there and convince yourself, well, maybe everybody else is right. But see, the problem with the herd is, is they're right in the middle of a move. The herd is right in the middle of a move. So if markets are going up, the herd will be, you know, right in the middle of that move higher. Everybody's going to be piling into stocks and markets are going to go higher. If the market's going down, everybody's going to be bailing out of stocks, which drives prices lower. But in the middle of that move, the herd is right. The herd is always wrong at both ends. They're wrong at tops and wrong at bottoms. The problem and uh, what we have to do as investors is we have to understand that when everybody is in the pool, so to speak, in one direction or the other, that's probably the vast majority of the gain that we're going to get. Now, we're not there just yet, right? We're still in a bit of the middle of this current move higher. And that's why I'm saying if you get a bit of a pullback here, that's probably an opportunity to add a little bit of exposure here because we're not to extreme levels of, of sentiment yet, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Retail investor sentiment has turned sharply bullish over the last couple of weeks. Just the last couple of weeks, all of a sudden, retail investors went, wait, what? The market's going up. I got to get in. Professional investors over the last couple of weeks have all woken up and go, oh, wow, I I'm missing the move. I got to get in. And so that's what's been fueling this, this ramp up higher that we've had in the markets here over the last couple of weeks. But the best thing that you can do to be a better investor is whenever you're about to click a buy or a sell button, <laughs> it's not to do it for a second. Step back and go, why am I doing this? Why am I about to buy this stock or that stock? Am I doing it because I feel like I'm missing out? Or am I doing it because the fundamentals and the technicals tell me this is a good investment opportunity? And, and the way to think about this is think about all the other things you do in life. You should treat your portfolio the same way you do everything else you buy in life, right? And we don't do this. We're, as investors, we're terrible about this. You know, 
we, we decide that we want to buy a new set of golf clubs or a new tennis racket or a new car, whatever it is we're going to buy. And we shop the hell out of it on the Internet, right? We look for the best deal. We look for the best make, the best model, you know, whatever it is. And we shop multiple things and we really analyze every little aspect of it, especially men. We're, ter- we're, we're way bad about this. But we, we, we analyze every specific niche and thing about whatever that item is, and we want to make sure we're getting the very best deal, have the best warranty, the whole nine yards, right? We spend a lot of time doing that before we make a purchase. But then we go into the stock market where we're actually investing, and we just buy whatever's going up or going down, right? We, just, we, just, we, make, we don't do any research. We just go buy it because somebody on television told us that, oh, it was a good buy, right? Got to jump in. Think about that for a moment. So if you really want to be a better investor, treat your investments exactly the same way you treat any other purchase because that's what you're doing. You're purchasing something. But that's what we that's that's the mistake that investors make and the most common mistake that they make. Emotions always make the worst investments over time. You may you may get lucky for a while, right? Things are, you're going to buy something's going to go up and you're going to feel like a genius. And then the market's going to take it all away from you again, right? And that's why people get fed up with markets and they stop investing and everything else. But just treat your investments just like you do any other purchase, and you'll do a lot better over time. All right, quick break. We'll be back. Take more of your questions and comments here. Uh, 281-558-5738. That's 281-558-5738. Or on our YouTube channel right now, we're live streaming The Real Investment Show on YouTube. Ask your questions there as well. We'll get to all of them right after the break. Don't go away. Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, welcome back to the show this morning. Taking your questions and comments live here on the Real Investment Show. 281 558 5738. If you live in the Houston area or actually anywhere in the country, you can call us. Um, take your questions from the radio show, of course, as we broadcast every day, AM 700. Um, at the same time, 281-558-5738 is that number. Or go online to our YouTube channel, and you can ask questions live on our YouTube channel at The Real Investment Show. We're trying to get to all those questions this morning. I went down the rabbit hole yesterday talking about – we had a question on options. So I don't want to go down the whole options um, rabbit hole again today explaining how an option works. If you have any questions about options – whatever feel free to email me just go to go to the real investment show.com uh sorry the real inv- <laughs> go to real investment that's our website real click on the ask a question button e- email me your question i'll try to answer it for you but just high level um we had a question on uh, two questions on options um one was on uh option credit spreads and i don't have enough detail here to really answer the the question entirely there's there's more that goes into that decision. The, the question is, when you do an options credit spread, what percentage rate of return do you require over the course of period of time? And normally that makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, normally I can say if, if I'm going to do this options credit spread, um, I want to have a, you know, a net credit, right, of 2%, 3%, whatever. 
the problem with the markets and, and what an options credit spread is is that I write a call and I sell a uh, uh, I buy a put or I I buy a call and I sell a put. So I'm doing. Uh, one thing I'm selling, one thing I'm buying, and it's on the same interest in, uh, same instrument um, over a period of time. And the goal is to create a what we call a cashless collar or a or an options credit. So in other words, I'm being paid for this transaction. And if they both if they both expire worthless, I just keep the cash, right? So it's normally a good way to generate to both reduce some risk in a portfolio and create some return. The problem is, is that volatility is so low in the markets right now that it's very difficult to to create a positive net credit spread. Calls are very expensive. Puts are too cheap because nobody wants puts right now. So there's no premium in puts and calls are super. Everybody's trying to buy calls right now to be in. So those 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 calls are very expensive. So if you're trying to, to buy a call and right and, and you know sell a put right because you want to bet on upside you're going to be deep in the red um the other problem is 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 trying to do it the other way and and write a call and buy a put you know you can have a decent yield on that but uh you know it's it, it's but because of that low volatility it's really making this a much more difficult problem so in a normal environment it's fairly easy if you have normal volatility Doing option credit spreads are, 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 are a good way to hedge risk in a portfolio, create some additional income, et cetera. It's just very difficult right now. We've been trying to do it in our portfolios on, on stocks, and it's, it's been tough. The other question that I had uh, on options was um, – so I'm trying to find it. <laughs> it was in front of me. It went away. Oh, do you, do you advocate selling puts to obtain stock? Yes. Uh, in fact, we have a portfolio that we manage that does just that. And uh, again, the problem right now, though, is you just don't really get paid for selling the put. Now, normally what happens and, and when you when you're talking about selling puts, what I, what I do is I say, I want to buy NVIDIA stock. But I don't want to buy it at $350 a share. If it pulls back to 300 or 280, wherever a certain moving average is or a good level of support, I want to buy it there so I can sell a put at that level, I get paid for it today. There's not much money in it, unfortunately, because the puts are so cheap. But I get paid for it today. And if the stock gets to that level, it will get put to me. And I will own the stock at that level. And we do that quite often in our in our well, some of our portfolios that we run to get into positions that we like at cheaper levels. And we get paid to wait for that opportunity. So it can make a lot of sense. But you need enough capital in your portfolio to do that because again in, in a lot of cases with stocks that are trading at two or three or four hundred dollars a share whatever they are it, it can be a a substantial buy you've got to you always got to think it's it's not costly to sell the put right i can sell the put i can but you have to buy a hundred shares of whatever that is so if you get if you buy one share of you know if you sell one put right um, you get paid for that one put today, but that means if it gets put to you, you have to buy 100 shares of that stock, whatever it is. And if that's a $400 stock, that's a $4,000 purchase. So it can get expensive very quickly in your portfolio. So you just got to make sure that you want to acquire that much stock in your portfolio, depending on the size of your portfolio, right? So just remember that. So, um, and I said 4000 that's wrong. It's, it's 400 times 100. Right. So it's forty thousand dollars. So it, it can get expensive really quick. 
So uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, so, all right, moving on. Uh, more questions here this morning. Can you borrow from an IRA to buy a home and then pay yourself uh, back with interest? No. Um, you There are ways uh, that you can buy real estate and put it in your IRA. That is a bad idea because you lose all the tax benefits of ownership of uh, real estate. So you should never do that. It, it's been, you know, people go, they put real estate in an IRA and they go, oh, well, if my real estate goes up in value, I won't pay any taxes on the gain. Well, that's true. If it's, 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 if it's rental property or whatever it is and you put it into an IRA, that's fine. Um, except the problem is you lose all the, the tax deductions and everything else that you get from owning real estate. So it really doesn't make a lot of sense if you're only betting on the capital appreciation that you're trying to defer the tax on, it really doesn't make a lot of sense when you look at how much money you get to deduct from real estate over time against your taxes <laughs> um, for running that piece of, of property. You're better off putting it into an LLC, running it like a business, take the tax deductions, et cetera, manage it that way. So uh, again, I, I wouldn't do that. But no, you cannot borrow from your IRA to make a home purchase and then pay yourself back. It just yeah, it doesn't work that way. Um, there's also restrictions against borrowing from IRAs. Um, moving on, um, <laughs> one thing we've been promising to do here for a while, and I apologize, is that we were going to do a, a seminar on using whole life insurance policy to do investing. It's, it's something I do a lot, and I've, I've mentioned it a couple of times on uh, Wealthy on podcasts that we do um, with Adam Taggart. And I've been promising him that we would do a presentation on that. It's my bad. Uh, just been swamped with markets and managing portfolios and, you know, hundreds and thousands of clients. And it's just been that thing. I just haven't had time uh, to put that presentation together. But I promise I'm going to get it done uh, and, and we will and, and we will discuss that. But but simply the 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 conversation that we've had that started all this was I was buying a house uh, recently with my wife and we had sold our house back in July and we were looking for a new home to buy, uh, July of last year, right? It's almost been a year. Um, we sold our house uh, kind of at the peak of the market. And since then, we've kind of been looking for a home. And, and so I'd mentioned this with, with Adam on the show. And the problem is, is mortgage rates are, you know, at that time were approaching 7% on 30-year mortgages. And I, and I mentioned on the show that I had borrowed from my whole life insurance policy at 4.4% to make the purchase of the home that we wanted to buy. So I currently have a mortgage of 4.4 in an environment with a 7% yield. And so this sparked a lot of, of interest about how do you use whole life insurance to create a investable pool. And, and this is talked a, a lot about on social media. You'll see a lot of these people on social media that talk about, oh, you can use whole life insurance and be your own bank. And this is how wealthy people do it, et cetera. And it's a true statement, except for the fact they kind of gloss over the fact that it takes a, a long time to build it up and B, you've got to be committed to it. And you've got to be committed heavily to it. You can't, this isn't something that you can do with $50 a month. It's not going to work because you've got to buy a whole life insurance policy, which has a premium attached to it just for the whole life insurance. And then you have to overfund that up to a point in order to build that cash pool to borrow from. So, you know, this is something I started 15 years ago and I've been 
building it up over the last 15 years to the point now that I can use it to make investments. I do hard money loans. I you know buy real estate, whatever it is, um, and then I pay myself back. And 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 so as long as your yield that you're getting from your investments is higher than the interest rate you're paying, then it makes complete sense. But this is something again I've been promising, and and I apologize. I've been promising to do this with Adam. And uh, I will I will set aside some time here in the next you know couple of weeks, and I'll put together a presentation uh, to do that with Adam, and, and we'll get that put together, and uh, we'll put it on our website as well for you, also. But thank you for reminding me and chastising me live on the internet for not doing what I said I would do. So I appreciate that very much. Um, all right, so a couple other questions, uh, real quick. Let me get to the markets here this morning, just as we're starting to get ready to approach kind of the open. Um, Markets are trading a little bit weaker now. Um, we were talking, markets were about flat earlier. They have been kind of weakening here uh, as we approach the open. The Dow's down about 60 points right now, SP's down around 10. So we're, you know, it, it is kind of softening a bit more. And again, this correction that we've been talking about, you know, this, uh, you know, last week we're saying, hey, we're really overdue for a correction here because we're really overbought, really extended, three standard deviations. This correction this week, not surprising at all. That's just kind of a function of how markets work. All the markets needed was a little bit of something to be worried about. And that worry is basically, what's the Fed going to say in front of the House Oversight Committee? That's Everybody's worried about what Powell's going to say. Rate hike coming in July, that's what they're all listening for. That's what they want to know. All right, quick break. We'll come back, wrap up the show with more of your questions. So uh, stick around. Give us a call, 281-558-5738 or online. Get lots of questions online. I'll try to get to as many as I can in the last segment coming up right after the break. Real Investment Show on YouTube. Put your questions there. We'll be right back. The Real Investment Show. show get ready to wrap up this hour um as we uh, finish up our two-hour show this morning and again this is only existing this week next week we go back to just our boring old one-hour show so but i but i have enjoyed answering these questions online so i think starting next week that we may dedicate a segment or two um you know during our one hour show to just answering questions during the week so i'll try to do this more often because it's it's been good and i'm i, I appreciate the interaction it's just hard. It's, it's we usually just have so much stuff going on. We got to get in topics, but I'll, I'll try to dedicate some more time just answering your questions because I know it's important to you. Um, I, I want to jump to one question. It, this may take up the whole segment, but I think it's something that is worth talking about because I get a lot of questions on this, and it's really, really bad information that people are getting. And that question is borrowing from your four hundred one k plan. Should I borrow from my 401k plan to buy something? The answer is never, ever, ever, never, 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 ever, ever, never borrow from your 401k plan. Ever. For any reason. I don't care if the world is coming to an end. You do not borrow from your 401k plan. The reason is the, the primary reason, right, right up front is for mo in most cases, this is all the money people have for retirement. And so the government has been trying to make it easier for the last couple of years to take money out of your 401k for hardship causes, right? I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm behind on this or I'm behind on that. I'm borrowing money to pay this or that. Don't do it. 
Figure out another way. Go do DoorDash, do Grubhub, whatever. Figure something else out to pay the bill. Don't take out the money from a 401k plan because, A, it's judgment-proof. So if you do have to file personal bankruptcy, they can't get to that. If you take the money out and then you file bankruptcy, you've lost, right? The 401k plan is protected. So if you're having financial difficulties at home, survive that however you can, but don't touch that 401k plan. And B, it's the only money most people have for retirement. So at the end of the day, that's all there is. So make sure you're contributing to that account at least enough to get the match. That's free money from your government. But you should be maximizing that funding every year in your 401k plan if you do nothing else at all. Because in most cases, that's all you're going to have for retirement. But here's some other reasons not to ever borrow from your 401k plan. The repayment will cost you more than your original contributions. Remember, when you borrow money from your 401k plan, you've got to pay it back with after-tax dollars. What's your tax rate? That's your interest rate. Because you borrow money that you put, the money you borrowed, you put in pre-tax. You didn't pay any tax on that. You borrowed it tax-free, but when you pay it back, you pay it back with after-tax dollars. That's your interest rate. It's not free money. So that low, that low interest rate you're getting has got a huge opportunity cost to it. The other side of that is, is that you know, while you take that money out, you also run the risk of job loss, especially in this environment. And the problem is, is let's say that you have 200000 in your account, you borrow 100000 to go do something with it, buy a piece of real estate, whatever it is, okay? You lose your job that loan is immediately due and payable. Because once you terminate, that loan has to be paid off. And so it either gets extracted from your 401k plan, so your $200,000 account is now $100,000, or you got to pay it back out of pocket. Or sell the asset to pay it back, whatever it is. But that is that is a problem, you know, if things get... get if you lose your job, and that's you know certainly in this environment right now, that's a rising possibility. Um, you know, if your financial situation deteriorates, you could lose more money. And you know, particularly in the case where your financial situation deteriorates, and you say, "Well, I've got to, I've got to cut out making my payments to my four hundred one k plan." Well, you can't. You've got to keep making those loan payments, or it becomes due and payable. Um. You know, so again, you know, there's there's just a ton of reasons never to borrow again. It's just it's just it's financially bad. There's there's nothing good that comes out of borrowing from your 401k plan. You can't generate a return to compensate for the repayment of that loan. You're not paying yourself back. That is that is a false statement, right? They're loaning you the money. And you've got to pay it back, and you're going to pay it back with after-tax dollars. So that interest rate is incredibly high. So just just pay attention to this. And and again, this is, uh, you know, again, you know, and the the basic premise is that ultimately at the end of the day, if you've got to borrow from your 401k plan to buy something, you can't afford that. You should be contributing, you know, as much as you can, $22,500 a year or or more if you're over 50 to do the catch-up. That should be going to the 401k plan. And whatever you do after that is, is your business. But you should at least be maximizing that 401k plan every year. Never touch it for any reason whatsoever until you retire. Okay. Um, question from John. Is the Vanguard S&P 500 index fund the best way to invest for the long term? If you're young, yes. 
I've been getting a lot of questions on uh, email lately from people that, you know, they're saying, you know, I've got less than $100,000 to invest and, you know, I'm 28 years old. How, how should I invest it? And I think that's a great question. And if I was 25, 26, 27, 28 with $100,000 to invest, that's awesome, right? I mean, most people that age don't have that kind of capital. Yes, the best thing you can do is this. First of all, make sure that you are fully funding your 401k plan at work. That's $22,500 a year. After that, you want to make sure that you are have saved up Six to a year, six months to a year's worth of an emergency fund just in cash in the bank. Because if you ever get into a position where you get into a bind, you don't want to go sell investments to to get yourself out of a out of a, out of a bind. So make sure you have six months to a year's worth. So if that hundred thousand dollars is what you're making a year, then you don't invest that hundred thousand, right? We need to start saving up more money, but have that fund set aside. After that, if you've got money saved up, still. Invest in a spousal IRA if she's not working. Okay, could be a Roth, could be tax deferred. You have to make your own tax decisions there, but definitely do that. If if she if, if he or she your spouse if he or she is working, then make sure they're contributing the max to their four hundred one k plan. The goal is to be saving at least thirty percent of your income every year, and then going and then you can spend whatever else you want to spend. But once you get into if you're young, if you're 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, then yes, just buy an S&P index fund and every month add money to it, every single month, whatever it takes to get to 30 or 40% of your savings. And do that for the next 30, 40 years. Yes, over time, the S&P is going to rise. You're not going to beat the market. You're not going to become fabulously wealthy. You're not going to find that one stock that goes to the moon. But what is going to happen is that you're not going to lose a big chunk of your money. You're, you're going to grow that money over time. And by the time you get to retirement, you'll have a very nice next nest egg built up. That is the goal and purpose of investing, which is to ensure that the investment dollars you have today grow over time to adjust for the purchasing power parity of those savings today in the future. And that's what the S&P will do for you because of inflation adjustment. So, yeah, it's not complicated. And, yeah, just buying the S&P index is a great way to do that. Just make sure that you religiously contribute to it every single month, every two weeks, whatever your pay schedule is. But that is after you fully funded your 401K, your spousal IRA, funded your emergency savings to compensate for your annual income as it grows over time, and then making sure that you're saving at least 30% of your gross income. And if you do that, you'll never have to worry about money getting in retirement. It's just, it's really an easy process. We just don't teach, people just don't have the discipline to do it, right? That's that's really what it comes down to. Um, <clears throat> has the, so got a couple of minutes here. Okay, so I'm trying to run through these very quickly to try to get to all of them I can uh, this morning. I do appreciate all the questions. Has the zero data expiration operations. So these are called, so one of the anomalies that have cropped up over the last 18 months has been this zero days to expiration options. And these are people running out to buy options that expire in less than 24 hours. And it's pure speculation on the markets. And this has now become a very large component of the overall options market that affects the volatility index. The volatility index is a measure of the options market. And, and this is why we call it the, 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 
the fear greed index because if everybody's buying calls um, everybody's being very greedy in the market there's very little volatility if everybody's really worried about a crash you have high volatility because everybody's buying puts and so that that tells you kind of what the market sentiment is but the problem with these zero data expiration options is that those aren't calculated by the vix and now they're a much bigger part of the options market that is not being calculated by the volatility index. So the volatility index is, yes, being affected by these very short-term options, and we may not be getting a good valuable read about what's actually happening volatility-wise in the overall market. Again, I'm not saying the VIX is broken. Uh, we won't know that until we actually get a good sell-off in the markets, and we'll tell you know whether or not the volatility index rises, then we'll know. But right now, um, th there is certainly evidence that these very short-term options are affecting um, what we're getting, um, you know, in terms of a reading from the volatility index. Um, <clears throat> one, one last question, very fast. Distressed debt in other countries? No problem with that. There's opportunities in countries where you can buy a deep, dis a deeply distressed debt and get a very high yield on your money. Just understand the risk. Uh, particularly in countries like Turkey, et cetera, that can come in and say, oh, yeah, that money's mine. Uh, just be careful. Distressed debt is distressed for a reason. The markets don't want to own it for a reason. So just make sure that you're smarter than the market when you're buying distressed debt and you're buying the right distressed debt because the consequence is zero versus making money. All right, that wraps up the show for the day. Thank you so much. We'll be back tomorrow for Thursday's edition of The Real Investment Show. Again, we'll spend the second hour again taking your questions and comments. We'll, we'll have some comments to talk about from Jerome Powell following the House Service Committee testimony. Uh, also update you on the markets and more. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get our latest blog post on the generative AI headwinds that is on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Send your questions and comments while you're there as well. And we'll see you tomorrow on the next edition of The Real Investment Show. Have a great day.